And so I'm curious what you think about that relationship of controlling migration versus gentrification and kind of what your thoughts are. Oh, it's a big subject. <laughs> um, you're making work about big subjects, Marina. So you're making people think with your work. <laughs> okay. Yeah, maybe I can talk about more specific uh, examples. I'll go back to my work then. Maybe I, I'll have more, more material to, to, to bring examples from there. Cool. Well, uh, welcome, Marina. <laughs> Look, we're we're too we're too informal to have a formal introduction. So every time we're like, "What do we say?" Okay, my name is Tiffany Daniel Elliott, and I am the curator for Interloper. I go by L, which is what everybody calls me. And I'm Connor Walden. I'm the lead programs manager here at Interloper, as well as the person who gets all the podcast stuff put together. And we are super excited to be talking to Marina. And I'm going to let you introduce yourself, but she is one of the artists that is exhibiting with us right now. Hello. <laughs> Hello, I'm Marina Camargo. Um, thank you for having me here. And I'm very excited to, to have the two shows in Seattle created by you. And I mean, and all, the, the other one is also created by Alan Parisi. Well, thank you for joining us. We want to talk to you about your exhibition. So we have some questions for you, but first we'd love to give you the chance to just say what you would like to talk about. So in particular, you're part of a series called This Land is My Land, and the title of your exhibition is Shifting Displaced. So for people that have been able to see your work and also people that aren't located in Seattle and can't see your work in person, what would you want them to know about it? I think it's very suggesting the the title you gave for the, the group of curator exhibitions, This Land is My Land. It talks a lot about a feeling that that it follows me, I mean, that accompanies me, that is a, a feeling of being displaced, whatever I am. Uh, I'm from Brazil, and in, even when I, I the first big uh, move I made was inside Brazil, so this, this experience of being displaced in my own country was somehow uh, determined for what came next and now I'm living in Germany so so that, that's something that's always there I mean I'm not speaking my language I'm always speaking someone not someone else's language and I'm, I'm trying to understand the place I am the space I'm living in so uh, I think these are some issues that are uh, related to the exhibition somehow and although the exhibition has um, I hope and I, I really believe that it has its own life. I mean, it, it doesn't need my discourse to, to be seen or to be understood. The works are related, basically. The works of, uh, that I, I, I produced, that I created for the exhibition uh, Shifting Displaced are basically uh, related to ideas and thoughts on space and places. And how can we try to understand uh, different places and spaces through a process of reduction or condensing some uh, data that's, that's there. For example, in a map, we can think about it as a reference of, as this kind of uh, condensed representation of a space or a place. And uh, it happens that maps are very present in my work. It's not that it's my basic subject of interest, but it has been regularly present as a 
I think it's a way of thinking space and place, as I mentioned before. So it's uh, a representation that I found in the world already that's done. Uh, it's it's like a, it's shared, it's an, a shared knowledge. So I'm basically changing, working, uh, manipulating, distorting, erasing, stretching these uh, representations of places and spaces. Okay, so I love, I, first of all, I love your work. Very obviously, um, oh, thank which you. is why we were excited to exhibit you. One of the questions I have is, you know, you use maps in so much of your work, the medium of your work. You use different physical mediums, but you're using it around maps. So how did you get into map making? What attracts you to map making? What is it about that as a, a way of communicating? Yeah, it's a good question because it started as a, a long time ago as a need to situate myself in a place that I didn't know when I moved, uh, when I first moved to, to Barcelona in Spain. So at the time I had no iPhones and all uh, Google Maps and I used uh, the, the, paper, the folded paper uh, city plans. And from that, I mean, I, I had a very clear impression that that drawing of the, the, the urbanism reduced in a single paper sheet was so helpful and so um, somehow a, re a, re a reduction of the, the complex reality I was uh, placed, I was experiencing. And so from, from that moment on, I started doing some works with maps, but later I also uh, started working drawing maps professionally. And I think the, the practice of drawing these maps regularly every month, I mean, I, I, I took one a week per month to, to do this work. And um, it gave me a kind of a physical experience of decomposing the maps. So I used to work with separating information, for example, uh, changing the, the maps, uh, organizing the space through layers. So I, I would have the only continents, only uh, borders and frontiers, ocean, seas, um, and so on. So I think this experience gave me um, somehow a familiar uh, knowledge uh, gave me some somehow a knowledge on cartography and um, nowadays it is very present and especially during the pandemic i think it, it it got more intense maybe because i was not able to to be outside and to experience places and spaces i was basically at my home or uh, in my studio working and then thinking about these places and spaces. So I think it became more um, present and more intense, the, the, the connection uh, between cartography and my artwork. I, I want to ask you some questions, and I know we're going to get to talking more about this idea of migration and gentrification and their relationship, which is really fascinating and a huge part of your work. But before I move into that, I want to ask you a question about a, a third layer and how technology, you know, you're talking about map making and it's such a physical representation of a physical place and how you situate yourself. And so what happens when we add that third layer of technology? Like embarrassingly, I will tell you that I have, I am like very low spatial intelligence. And so it's why I'm fascinated with maps because I mean, I can have been somewhere a million times, even where I live in Seattle, I get so turned around. I have no idea where I am. 
And so I rely really heavily on digital maps. And it's really interesting because now that we have digital maps and I grew up at a time before we used Google maps. And so I had to learn where I was and I had to like exercise that and situate myself. But now I can kind of like turn that part of my brain off and just turn on Google maps and figure out where to go. And so it's a way that actually the digital map keeps me from ever having to situate myself. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the digitization and technology interacting with maps. Oh, it's very interesting because it changed the way we situate, we locate ourselves in the world, actually, because before Google Maps and before having access of the, the digital maps in our uh, devices everywhere, we had to take uh, a look in the whole space representation, for example, a printed map. And in the digitalized maps, we can, we basically become a dot. I mean, we are in the center of the perspective, as if we were in the center of the world and then everything surrounds us. So it changed completely the perspective of the space. So it changed completely the perspective of the world. I think it's, it's very dramatic and it, it's interesting. It, it's, it's something new. Right. And it's, it's interesting, sorry, that um, the, also how it changes your approach to the culture and the the place where you are. Like I just grew up traveling a ton. And the first thing I did was buy a map. Also like the way that people engage maps and engage location is really different in different places. So for instance, a lot of places I've traveled, there isn't like there aren't street signs. It isn't like turn left on this street or on this road. It's like pass by this house, pass by this place. And it, it speaks so much about the country and the culture and I think it was very recently, I was in Greece a couple years ago that I got there and I thought, oh, I can just turn on my Google Maps. And it was this weird experience of being in another country, but having the exact same experience, the same map. Like I'm like, oh, I can navigate this like an American, like, like I do in Seattle. And it's this weird flattening of how we even navigate our spaces has become available as the exact same language, no matter where you are. So I just want to say that uh, navigating a map is something totally different from walking through a space and inhabiting a space. It's although the, the map constitutes reality, it's part of reality, but it's not never the same experience. And that's, I think it's relevant to understand why I am interested in maps. It's, it's not that I understand it as a, a perfect representation of a place or a city. It's not like this, but it's more a narrative of the space. So we can understand and navigate through these representations and have an understanding of a place and a space, but it's never the same as walking on the streets or, or visiting a place. Yeah, well, what I was just going to say was, based on what Elle's question actually, and then Marina, your response about how using like Google Maps, if you will, like you, you become the center of this map. Um, actually my, my answer to the question was like, oh, you just lose the social component of having to ask for directions and having to ask people for, for advice. And actually that's one thing that technology does is it makes everything more efficient. We actually don't have to like reach out beyond ourselves. We can come up with all the answers internally, which is more efficient than having to actually like work with other people. And then we actually end up doing what technology does too, which is we create another like reality or like this like other sense of reality that is just a parallel existence of what we're actually doing. Because now actually Google Maps and Apple Maps, their their whole thing that they've been trying to do recently is creating a three-dimensional street view that you can literally walk along the street digitally 
that can you can go into buildings and even see things there, like see the inside of the buildings in the same way. Like it's like augmented reality. Maps. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, but also this this kind of digital resource in cartography, uh, as we are, you just mentioned, gives her a sense of uh, precision of uh, that that the Google Maps, for example, uh, is precise uh, in, in relation to, to to reality, and even though it's very very close to what you can see on the streets, it's not exactly the same. And I think that, that there is an example that I. I I like to mention because it's. I think it's very strong. It's uh, until 2016 in Brazil, in Rio, Rio de Janeiro, all the favelas and the the, the, the communities, the slabs, uh, were not represented in Google Maps. So it used to be represented as green areas, as if the city mm-hmm. of Rio was made of uh, parks and mountains without uh, inhabitants living there. So the, the, well, it was only during the Olympics, Olympic Games, that uh, the communities decided to be mapped. So they, they asked wow. to be mapped. I mean, they, they wanted wow. to be to exist there. I mean, the, their business, the, their local businesses. So the, the so Google Maps um, hired the, the, some leaders in the communities and ask them to, to, to do the, the work of the Google Street View and to actually map the streets in these areas. So we, we, we still think, I think that's a very good example to understand that, how maps are still um, a partial narrative of the world and the, how we tend to believe that maps are true. It's all about um, truth and it's it is, but it's only one part of the, the reality is not. The reality means not the whole reality. It's a, it's a part of a narrative always. Yeah, and actually that's what I really love about one of your pieces in our show, Songlines, which is you're literally taking these abstracted borders and using that as the score for an instrument. It's just acknowledging that it's just something else. We, we, you have abstracted, you've taken this abstraction and it's creating something else, even though it's a reduction of our understanding of what this thing can be. We've actually created something completely different, which is which is beautiful in and of itself. And like it's it's really amazing to hear this this cello going up and down following these waves. But like the actual score of that border would be more likely, you know, street noise and rivers and other, you know, environmental noises. Following up with what you're saying, what's really interesting is I love how you keep talking about maps as narratives. And I just keep thinking about like when you have a narrative, whoever the storyteller is, then that has a point of view. And so even kind of like moving from this conversation about the digital into the physical migration of people and map making is if maps have, if they're representation of a place, but it's a narrative and it represents a point of view, then you think about if we're all accepting this digital map and Google maps and we're using it, whose point of view are we accepting? And so your story about the favelas is a perfect example of someone is getting to narrate a story that we're all accepting specifically as this is what life is. And so like connecting that into even the song, uh, song lines that you're talking about with the borders is like, I always have a question of who creates borders and are they actual physical things and how you've kind of abstracted them in this piece. But I would argue that borders themselves are abstract ideas. Are they actually physical things? <laughs> yeah, I think song lines um, hides or reveals a, a, an idea of borders that I have that and it's a bit, maybe it's a bit naive uh, or maybe it's, I don't know, uh, that I think borders are 
uh, are basically useless. And that uh, sounds a bit naive when it think about the sovereignty of the nation states and so on. So I, th I know it's um, maybe it's uh, too, too extreme uh, to think about uh, the uselessness of the borders, but the work... Uh, song lines are, are related to this idea. So um, the, the idea that uh, there is the borders, the political borders are such an abstraction uh, in the territory, especially when the borders are defined by, by a colonizer or someone that comes uh, to the land and just say, okay, so from this point uh, to the other one, uh, I'm putting a line that's not there. I mean, there is nothing that is actually dividing. I mean, sometimes in many places there are walls or, or fences, but even if the, the, the borders are not visible, it's there and it's creating a division between uh, people and people who who live in the area, who, who traverse the, this, the zone. And also there's a, a power dynamic in these permeable borders, right? Like these borders are almost non-existent to certain people and are ironclad to others. And in just being like really open and vulnerable, and which I always try to be as much as possible on these podcasts, it was a really interesting experience as a person that lives in North America in the United States that I grew up traveling. My dad was in the Navy. And so not only we had really easy access to most places in most countries, I traveled all the time. Um, and then I have a 14 year old and I wanted to give her more stability. So we settled in Seattle. And when she turned 13, I was like, all right, I want to start traveling. I want you to see the world. You pick the first country and we'll go there. And so we went to Japan and it was like right the month before COVID and the shutdown. And so the next year we we're like, all right, every year I want to start traveling and taking more places. And she loved it and she was excited about it. But it was this really interesting experience with COVID because all the borders shut down. And not only that, but because the United States was doing such a poor job of handling COVID that they the countries were open to other countries and not the United States. And it was this really interesting experience where suddenly we couldn't go anywhere and other people could. And I was like discussing this with my 14 year old and she was really frustrated about it. And I said, you know, this is what most children around the world feel every day. And this is not something I ever had to experience. Anyways, I bring that up as an example of, it was this really great experience of putting me back on myself of like, I have grown up with there. Yes, there are physical borders, but most of them are permeable to me because I have the privilege of having a U.S. passport. What that even means, I don't know. I didn't earn it. I was just born into it. And so as that power dynamic shifted, it was a really great experience to teach my kid of like, these borders are not permeable to a lot of other people. And, and who decides who gets to go through and who doesn't? It's all about privilege after all. I mean, it, it, depend, it depends where you come from. You have a lot of privilege and um, you don't, you do, you're not just not able to realize that. But coming from Brazil, it depends also from which social tract you come from because it depends on the, the, the color of your skin, depends on the social class. If you speak a better or a worse English, it's going to, to allow allows you or not to go to place or or not, so it's uh, we, we can say that there, there are the political borders, these lines that are that seem seem to be abstractions, but there are also another kind of uh, frontiers that are uh, 
in different levels of society, especially when you talk about a country as uh, Brazil, where I come from. And maybe you had a bit, uh, your daughter have a bit of this feeling, I mean, during the COVID uh, time. It's interesting. I mean, it's very interesting and it's not the same. I just can say that it's not, never the same when you think about borders, when you, from inside Europe, it's one subject because we are free to, to walk around countries. It's like living in a, in a big country. And uh, when you talk about borders coming from Brazil, it's another uh, totally different experience. So, yeah. Great. So I want to ask you a question about, and, and yeah, like, I think it's, I love that we had that experience because I... I appreciate that she got to have the experience of being denied so that she could really think back on herself of like, what do I constantly have access to? And I think that you bring up a really great point too, that there are different levels of access to places. And a lot of it has to do with skin color. A lot of it has to do with socioeconomic status, opportunities, power that we can't just talk about borders and maps without talking about power and who's defining that. And so a really interesting question that I'd love to hear your thoughts on is, that relationship of migration and also immigration, but migration to gentrification. And so, you know, I was talking to a friend that we actually interviewed on here, Tola Adewaligan, and, you know, he was talking about obviously gentrification can be a negative thing, is a negative thing. Um, but he said, but what's the alternative controlling migration? <laughs> and so I'm curious what you think about that relationship of controlling migration versus gentrification and kind of what your thoughts are? Well, it's a big subject. <laughs> um, you're making work about big subjects, Marina. So you're making people think with your work. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, maybe you can talk about more specific uh, examples. Um, I, I'll go back to my work then. Maybe I, I'll have more, more um, uh, material to, to, to bring examples from there. Uh, in the work I did for the exhibition uh, Shifting Displaced, the Protected City, uh, it's a series of videos. Uh, and for Seattle, I did a new one. It's, I always uh, produce a new video using the, the, the plan of the city where I'm exhibiting the work. And the first work I did for, for this series was about Sao Paulo in Brazil uh, some years ago. And after that, I have been producing new videos uh, every city I show the work. And uh, when I did the one uh, for uh, using the, the Berlin plan, I realized that the, there were some other subjects involved in this context of the urbanism and that moving some blocks away from the center of the, from the city center meant something else as just uh, playing around the, this map. And then I, I realized that it has uh, to do with the how the city was destroyed and reconstructed and that the urbanism was uh, redrawn. And also how gentrification changed the relationship with the city. I mean, who the city belongs to, that's a central question. And when I did the projected city Seattle, the process was different because I started researching the areas that were mostly affected by gentrification and where the households were displaced from the original homes because they could not anymore afford the, the rents. 
and uh, from that uh, data I, I did the work. So it's uh, the starting point of the work is totally different because it's basically focusing on the, the subject of gentrification. And I think it, it depends on which city are we talking about because uh, here in Berlin I have been following the, the changes of the city and I can say that it's um, how negative the effect might be. Uh, but when I talk about the city uh, as Porto Alegre, where I come from in Brazil, we see we observe that some neighborhoods are not changing for 30 years or more. So we have another problem that is uh, a place that is not affected by... The, 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 there is no... There are no migrants coming uh, to live there, and there is no changing in the in the the city plan. In the sense, it's it's different uh, when they talk about it, gentrification in our European country, maybe in the United States, and it is uh, when you talk about it in Brazil. I I think. Well, what well, well, I think that gives you a perfect point of view to be able to talk about the complexity, and and that's part of the reason why I asked the question is because it is such a complex question that does not have a simple answer. And I think often when people talk about gentrification, they just say gentrification's bad. And I'm like, whoa, it's an incredibly nuanced. And that's part of what we're trying to do is tease out the nuance. Yeah, I agree. That's a complex subject. And I don't think I can handle giving a simple statement on gentrification. But depending on the place you're talking about, we can clearly say that has... I mean, something is happening, something is in a bad direction, or maybe it's not. Can you talk more about that? Like, talk more about your experience, particularly in Berlin and also in Brazil and the areas that you've lived in? Um, because you have a unique experience of, of living in different countries and not, not just traveling, but living and really getting to see the changes. Yes. Uh, I mean, the Brazil I can talk about is the South, uh, Porto Alegre. And Porto Alegre is a city that has uh, been stagnated economically. So we don't, don't experience the gentrification process in the same way we do in Europe, for example. Because there, um, when there is some renovation in some neighborhoods, we tend to see as something positive. But at the same time, there, there are some companies that are just building, uh, I don't know, just business complex and something that some horrible beauties in, in places that they shouldn't do, but they have the power to, to get allowance to do that. Uh, but in Berlin, the situation is completely different because it's a city that has been uh, in the last, I mean, every year we see a different perspective. And uh, either in the migration and the, the possibility of finding an affordable living place, uh, affordable place for living and um it has been changing so fast that I doubt that uh, it's something positive. Uh, I think it's almost out of control. So the, 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 the perspective is that maybe the city is going to change so drastically that it's not going to be recognized as the Berlin you used to know, which is okay. I mean, I'm not against changing. I, I think the cities are always changing and that's the nature of the, the places to change. But when the capital is dominating and just changing in one direction and uh, displacing people who used to make the, the life in the city more lively, more colorful, then we can start to get worried, I think. It's just, it might be a negative 
change. And I think that's the, the, the path that, that Berlin is facing now. There's just been some things that I've been thinking about. I don't know, maybe a question will come out of it. But the first is that I just think it's so curious out of like the cities that you live in and work out of with maps is like such an inspiration that it's Berlin that has such a history of power and border making. It's like the Berlin conference, right? Where they decided how are we going to split up Africa so that it can be colonized and like the best way to make profit from all these different countries that we're just going to draw lines, you know, then obviously like the Nazi regime that like hailed from Berlin and then just like the borders advanced and advanced and advanced. And then also Berlin being split in half by the allied forces after World War II, and then having this weird like island of West Berlin in the middle of East Germany, right? So it's like talking about power and this actually was all stemming from, I was just thinking, are borders necessary for displacement to exist? And that was actually more of like a rhetorical question that I was thinking about with actually occupation and like borders advancing. Like I was thinking of being in Austria during World War II. It's like you didn't have to move for it to feel like you were displaced. The borders were changed around the you. The borders or were you changed around that, you. Yeah. And then now all of a sudden you have a different regime that's like telling you you have to fight for them. Which goes relates back to even on a small level and what Marina is doing with her work with projected cities is as the neighborhood lines change and this concept of gentrification, that suddenly it's the same city you've always lived in and all your restaurants are different and who owns your restaurants are different and who owns your time and who your boss is. And so it is this like, it's, it's a really interesting global to local comparison of occupation. Um, uh trying to answer uh, Connor's uh, questions. Um, when I was drawing the, the borders um, of Africa for the song lines we are exhibiting uh, in Shifting Displaced, I was so uh, uh, touched by the, the, the straight lines. You can see the, the, the African borders and the, the straight lines uh, mean something that is that uh, it was, they, they were defined during this uh, Berlin conference. And I couldn't avoid thinking that I was here, very close to the place where the, this man, some years ago, draw these lines and that creates so much violence in another continent. And it's interesting because it's about geometry and how the geometry reveals an exercise of power uh, toward another uh, people. So yes, I think it's uh, it's, uh, it's uh, they are all. I, I'm I'm talking from uh, I'm now in a place in, in the case. I'm in Berlin, and it's a place that it's everything but ne neutral uh, in this subject. So, uh, but but you asked about um, the if displacement has to do with borders and I, I I don't think so when I think about in a, it's a very close example uh, coming from my country from Brazil uh, when I think about some people I mean at least when we talk about the political borders I don't think it's related necessarily to political borders uh, because we can think about the people that are migrating from one one part of the country to to other to the other because of I don't know because they don't have jobs because they don't have food they are have some they, they're struggling somehow with the, the place where they're living in and that's the case of Brazil um, some decades ago the, the migration from northeast to the southeast was so strong and 
I was born in Northeast, uh, so there is a kind of stigma. So these people, the people that come from this area, became uh, somehow stigmatized uh, from by having to move from one area of the country to the other. So I don't think it has necessarily to do with political borders, but it do has some influence of this, uh, this other kind of borders we were talking before, the, the social borders and the differences that divide the, the population. Uh, the, the opportunities. Um. Uh, it's been really great talking to you today. And since when this podcast is coming out next month on the 29th, so there will still be time for people in Seattle to see your exhibition. Oh, great. Um, shifting displaced at Interloper. And so if just really encourage people to check this exhibition out, you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss Marina's work. <laughs> it's really thought provoking. You, you have some like really beautiful pieces and we didn't talk a lot about the materiality of the work because I really want people to see it. So the idea behind this podcast is to talk about the really, really important things that you're talking about, Marina. And also, if you haven't seen it, get a ticket. The tickets are free. You can sign up Mm -hmm. on our website if you live in Seattle. And if you don't live in Seattle, it's definitely worth coming to Seattle to see this work. (laughs) I'm just going to say that. (laughs) I should consider that option too. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me and for inviting me for the exhibition. You have been my brain, my arms, my everything in Seattle. Uh, without you, the exhibition would not be possible. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Marina. You're welcome. Thank you for, for exhibiting with us. It's really been an honor <laughs> to work with you. Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com slash podcast, where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interloper's vision is putting money into the hands of artists, saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com slash funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and conversation. Finally, we release the podcasts, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. So set your calendars and follow us on Instagram at interloper underscore unlicensed to find out what's next. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. Interloper is a project of the Milkshake Club, which is powered by Shenpike. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Connor Walden and Tiffany Danielle Elliott. The song you heard in the podcast today is Lofi and La Fila de la Totiria by Palmasur. Thank mm-hmm. you.